Good morning, Smithfield. Who's got their Bibles today? Word, word. Who's got a pen today? Oh, let me get my pen. Let me get my pen. Pen. All right. You never know what the Lord's going to say to you on a Sunday morning. Amen? Amen. Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. That's the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. And then let's come before the Lord and ask his blessing on our time. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now, Lord, anticipating to hear from your spirit and your word. Father, if I could give just an inkling of the glorious, incredible picture of a worship that is truly displaying the worth of Christ that is found in the text before us in Mark. Lord, I just pray, God, that you would magnify that. Lord, do above and beyond what we could ask, hope, or imagine. Lord, wherever our hearts are at today, that you would open them up. Wherever our ears are at today, that you would... Dig out ears for us to hear what the Spirit has to say to us, whether we've come in, come in discouraged, whether we've come in just sailing with joy for Jesus and full of hope and radiant with the love of Christ, or whether we feel a bit stale and frosty in our hearts in the house of God. Father, I pray that your spirit would come upon this time, that you would minister to us and that we would give a, get a vision of Christ and a vision of worship, Lord, that is just drenched with the gospel and that is causing us, Lord God, to live for you in fresh obedience, with fresh resolve. Revive us, renew us, send your spirit to prepare us to be a people who go out into the world with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and blitz this city and this county and this state and this nation for the kingdom of Christ and for the name that is above all names. And we ask these things and we pray, Lord, help us now in Jesus name. Amen. It's interesting when we think about how valuable something is, like what it's worth. And I was thinking about that this week. And as I've grown older, um, you know, my mom over the years would give us a call when she was doing some spring cleaning or some declutter. Um, and we would get little things shipped to us every now and again when that would happen. And, and you never kind of knew what she was going to find when she went through the storage and she unpacked those boxes and she's like, we got to get rid of some stuff. And I can remember my dad, you know, on one occasion he was telling me a story about, you know, what seemed like junk to my grandmother. It was a couple of baseball cards, you know, a little pack of baseball cards. Um, one of them happened to be Sandy Koufax, um, mint condition. And she looked at it and she saw just some cardboard, you know, with a picture on it, baseball card, no big deal. She tossed it into the garbage. 
And much to my dad's chagrin, every time he talks about that story, he's like, my mom, my grandmother, threw out baseball cards that now, today, they were worth five cents back then. Today, they'd be $7,000 to $25,000 for one of those cards of Sandy Koufax. And it puts into perspective this thing that we call worth. Like, what's something worth? And the same thing happened with my Star Wars figurines, you know? My mom's going through, and and I used to, I didn't really, you know, I, I would play with them rough. I would shoot BBs at these little Star Wars figurines. But a few of them, you know, had made it, made the test of time. And now those are worth hundreds of dollars, some a thousand. But things like that, that have great worth, tossed as having no value. So we, we struggle sometimes to really kind of apprehend what something's worth. Sometimes we don't really understand what a thing is worth. And when it comes to Jesus, perhaps even believers, most definitely unbelievers, can underestimate the worth of Jesus Christ, the surpassing glorious worth of Christ. And so I was thinking about that today, like how much do we value Jesus when we come to worship? How much do we think he's worth? Worship is about displaying the worth of Christ, giving him the worth he's due. He's worthy of worship and honor and praise. And then you start thinking about your life as an emblem of the worthiness of Christ. Does my life display the worth of Jesus? Like when people look at you, do they see, man, Jesus must be glorious because look at the transformation. Look at a heart that's generous and full of love and, and winsome and, and has the breath of God on them. It's amazing what Jesus can do in the human heart when we begin to recognize his worth. So today, in our account in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, we're going to read about some different responses to Jesus and his worth. Because some people have no idea who Jesus is. And they're hostile to him. Others have a very small view of Jesus and so, it's kind of a mixed bag. They appear to be a disciple one day and then another day. They have no love for Jesus. And then, we're going to see the life of a woman who just lays it all out. For worship unto the Lord. And so, we're going to walk into this and get some help because... Really, if we get a hold of this text, it's going to light a fire in Smithfield. Amen? It's going to light a fire in this church because we're going to actually see Jesus for what he's worth and see the kind of worship that honors and glorifies him. So let's look at it. And you're going to see all those camps as we walk through, starting in verse 1, Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of 
of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, meaning Jesus, by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. That's like a year's wage. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Oh, what a glorious saying. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they had heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So you can see kind of right off the bat, sandwiched in between the plot to kill Jesus and the betrayal of Judas is this beautiful account of a woman worshiping Jesus. She's not even named, and yet the memory of her will be preserved wherever the gospel is preached. And I'm talking about it right now. And it's a fulfillment of the very words of Jesus. Because she loved Jesus. So the, 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 the driving force of this passage is about the worship Jesus is due, His worth and His worthiness. And we're going to get all kinds of pictures, right, from this passage. We're going to get a picture of hostile opposition to Jesus. We're going to get a picture of extravagant worship. And we're going to get a picture, ultimately, of deceptive betrayal of Jesus. And actually, I'm going to flop that third one. I'm going, to go, I'm going to put that one second, just so we can end on a glorious note. Point number one, a picture of hostile opposition to Jesus. Did you see that right there in the text? Verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So all through Mark's gospel, opposition to Jesus is building. It's building. It started back when he healed a man on the Sabbath. 
And the religious leaders got all bent out of shit. <laughs> He's healing somebody on the Sabbath. How dare him heal somebody on the Sabbath? There's no work done on the Sabbath. And yet Jesus healed the man in opposition. Began. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. The religious leaders are upset. Jesus cleanses the temple. And the religious leaders want to kill him. In Mark chapter 11, we see a picture of that. In Mark eleven fifteen, it shows this opposition building, right? And they came to Jerusalem. Or then they came to Jerusalem. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And then what happens? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. It's like opposition has been culminating and culminating from the time Jesus' ministry began to get popular and the religious establishment who had perverted the temple worship. And instead of prayer, it's like a, a, a circus bazaar with all sorts of animals. And they're char charging exorbitant prices to make a buck on the backs of the people. And Jesus says, no, that's not happening in the house of God. And he chases them out. My house shall be called a house of prayer. My father's house shall be called a house of prayer. But you've made it a den of robbers out with you. So the gauntlet, ultimately, that showdown between Jesus on the one hand and the religious establishment on the other is building. You know, you think about it, just a side note, that it goes to show you when the people of God stop praying together, corruption and hypocrisy are sure to follow. And many a church have went by the wayside because they refused to pray as a body of believers. Powerful words of Jesus. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And he got in all kinds of trouble. And the work of the cross was set in motion. And the hearts of the people were angry. Or at least the religious establishment. And then we get to Mark chapter 14. And notice verse 1. It just says what's going on, right? It was two days before Passover. And beloved, you know Passover, right? Passover was a feast that commemorated Israel's exodus from Egypt, where God delivered Israel with a mighty hand. And he told all the Israelites, here's what you do. You got to take a lamb without blemish, without spot. And you got to slaughter it. And you got to take its blood and put it over the doorposts of your house. And when the judgment of God, that angel of death comes for the firstborn of the Egyptians, it will pass over the houses with the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb. And you will be spared. 
you will be saved. You'll be delivered. And it's an irony of Mark's text here that what's happening in this passage is Passover would be the very time that the Pharisees or the scribes and the religious leaders, the chief priests, would begin to plot by stealth to kill Jesus. Except they had originally wanted to do it after the feast. But on account of Judas's betrayal, it gets moved forward. In the providence of God, he takes the opposition to Jesus and he flips it on its head and he uses it for the redemption of a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So yes, there's opposition. People will be hostile to Jesus, but God is able to use in his sovereign will even that opposition for his redemptive purposes. God's in control in this account all the way through. And even though there's a plot to kill Jesus, well, Jesus would be the new Passover lamb. Jesus would be the new lamb of God who his blood was spilled. And if you apply his blood to the doorpost of your heart by faith, the judgment of God will pass over you and you will be forgiven, brought into his family, brought out of your own personal exodus in bondage to sin and brought into a relationship with the living God. That's who Jesus is. And they're hostile to him and they want to kill him. And it's not an accident that our account begins there at the Passover. And there are hostile people today, right? That's a, that's a response to Jesus that is contemporary. There are people who don't like Jesus. They don't like what he has to say. They don't like Christians. They don't like what you stand for. And in fact, it's become vogue for Christians to become the new villains, right? In our culture today. And I wonder, you know, when we see hostility among us, do we cower at that or do we get encouragement from an account like this that God can use hostility for his good purposes and God can save hostile people too? I give you the Apostle Paul who was breathing murderous threats against the church and his life gets flipped upside down as he's knocked off a horse meeting Jesus and becomes the Apostle Paul. It's an amazing thing when somebody who's hostile gets his heart gripped by God and saved. But not everybody does. I can remember, ultimately, when I became a Christian, a lot of my family, the whole Jewish side of my family, was not really happy that I was following Jesus. In fact, they were devastated. My father was devastated. He just hoped this is going to be a passing fad. My grandmother said, I'm, I was born a Jew, Peter, and I will die a Jew. And I don't need any of this business of Christ. And that's exactly what happened. My grandfather, on the other hand, resisted the gospel up until the very end. But I can remember on his deathbed having an opportunity to talk to him. And God had so softened his heart 
that though he was once hostile to Jesus, he asked Jesus to save him that very night. And much like the thief on the cross, the Lord said, today you will be with me in paradise, right? So maybe most people we meet are not hostile to Jesus. Maybe even in here, there's not hostility to Jesus, but possibly indifference. There's not hostility, but there's a little bit of indifference, perhaps. You don't really care about the things of God, perhaps. Maybe, maybe Jesus is like an hors d'oeuvre, but the main event is something else. Maybe Jesus is, is what you do one day a week, and the rest of the week is yours. Maybe coming into worship service, it's a boring thing. There's not, there's not fire in your heart for the living God. That's possible to be indifferent. But Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. Right? He said, you can't be in the middle. You can't be indifferent. You can't be lukewarm. I'll spit you out of my mouth. That's not useful, he would say. And Jesus clearly said, whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in me is condemned already because he has not be believed in the name of the Son of God. So indifference to Jesus will lead us to hell, ultimately. So the first picture of hostile opposition or even a lukewarm indifference is one way people respond to Jesus. But we also see in our passage a, a picture of exquisite betrayal. We see a, a picture of a, a duplicitous betrayal. We see the picture of somebody who looked like they were a believer, but they had a small view of Jesus. We see Judas with a short-sighted view of who the Lord was. He didn't know what he was dealing with. Look at it in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. Mark wants you to know he was one of the twelve. He was one of the boys. He was one of the twelve. And he went to the chief priest in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, could you imagine their adulation? When they heard it, they were glad. They'd been longing for a way to get Jesus. And finally, one of his own disciples offered it up to him on a silver platter. And they were glad and they promised to give him money, 30 pieces of silver to sell out Jesus. And then, verse 11 says, Judas went out and sought an opportunity to betray the Lord. A lot of things going on there, but one thing is certain. He did it of his own volition. Yet it was foreordained that the son of perdition would betray in this way. And in fact, the Old Testament said he'd be betrayed by 30 pieces of silver and one of his own. And Jesus knew because it wasn't long after that he would tell his disciples in the upper room with Judas present I tell you, one of these in this room today, one of you are going to betray me. 
In fact, we get a picture of it in John 12, 4, where Jesus, um, excuse me, uh, we get a picture of it uh, later in Mark. I'll, I'll get to that in a second. I jumped the gun there. Ultimately, we see in Jesus or in Judas, somebody who played the part, somebody who had a small view of Jesus, somebody who was willing to be around God's people, somebody who was willing to be in church. They're willing to hear good sermons. They're willing to to hear the praise and worship and all of that and be so close to Jesus. And yet so far. That's who Judas was so close to Jesus, but so far away. In fact, he would rebuke the woman. Who would lavishly worship Jesus. And John 12 for reminds us, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He's the, he's the ringleader of this whole attack on this woman. And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas was an embezzler and Judas was stealing money from Jesus. And the reason Judas is bent out of shape is not because the the poor are going to be neglected, but because his pocketbook, his bottom line will be affected. And immediately following Jesus' commendation of the woman, he sets out to betray Christ. You know, Jesus warned that this category of a false brother, this category of somebody who looks the part but is a betrayer, He warned of that in Matthew 7, verse 21. It says, not everybody, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, Jesus said. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And you'll notice that Jesus says, many will say to me on the judgment day that I did this, this, and that. And Jesus will look and say, I didn't even know you. I didn't know you. They might point to good works, but they never had a heart for God. They were never born again. They were never truly disciples. They were close to the action, but far from God. They honored Jesus with their lips, but their heart was far from him. And there are Judases in the church at large. There are Judases that will go on with all the religious activity. They'll go on with everything. But they'll sell out Jesus. For an illicit sexual encounter. They'll sell out Jesus at the click of a button. They'll sell out Jesus for a little bit of money. They'll sell out Jesus. For the pleasures of Egypt. 
And Jesus is saying, I want your heart. I want you to know me. I want your worship. I'm calling you to something different than duplicitous, self-righteous, hypocritical, false worship. He was calling his disciples to something real, even though numbered among them was somebody who was, just went so horribly wrong. So maybe you think to yourself, you're like the disciples when Jesus warned and said, when are you going to betray me? And they're like, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Is it I? And the only one who doesn't say anything is Judas. In fact, Mark uh, 14, or Mark 14 and verse 18 says what happens. As they're reclining at table, Jesus knows the hearts of people. As they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to, to him um, and to one another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man to have never been born. You know what I get from this? Is that Jesus can see right into your heart. He can see right into your heart. He knows what's going on right now, even as I speak. He knows if you're recoiling from this teaching in unbelief, or if you're recognizing the reality he knows if your worship is false or real. He knows if your worship is genuine and full of faith or faithless and full of corruption. He knows our hearts and we cannot hide our hypocrisy from him. But the good news is he is a gracious savior to all who repent. He won't be fooled by our vanity or any religious showmanship or gamesmanship because he sees the matter as it is. It's been said that you can fool all of the people some of the time. You can fool some of the people all of the time, but you can't fool the Lord any of the time. Right? You can't fool Jesus any of the time. So where are you at today? Are you longing for a deep communion with Jesus? Are you longing in church today for just a, a worship that just bubbles up and it's vibrant and glorious and beautiful? Well, that's what we see in this last picture. Because we've seen hostility, we've seen indifference, and now we see extravagant worship. If you look with me at verse 3, it's like the, the whole account is culminating onto this point. It's like everything is zeroing in and trying to get your eyes right here so you can see what's happening. Verse 3, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask, poured it over his head. 
And ultimately, the disciples are indignant by what's happening there. And they say, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. So walk into this scene with me, right? Walk into this scene. You are at a house of Simon the leper. Now, he didn't have leprosy at the moment, but he was most likely somebody who was healed by Jesus, and he had the name Simon the leper. It's not a great nickname, but when you've been healed by Jesus and you love Jesus, I guess you're willing to go by some crazy nicknames every once in a while. And you're with a sort of motley crew of people like Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And Lazarus has been raised from the dead already at this point. So you can imagine what their table fellowship was like, right? You can imagine the conversations around dinner. What was it like? And then into all of that, in this little house in Bethany, a woman just comes barging in. And she takes an alabaster flask of pure nard that would have been worth like $40,000, 40K, a whole year's wage. And she busts it and she just pours it on Jesus' head and on his feet and doesn't stop wiping his feet with her hair. As you piece together these two accounts from John and this, you begin to realize that this unnamed woman, who we find out is Mary in the Gospel of John, most likely. This unnamed woman just lavishly worships Jesus and completely lays it all out before the Lord. And it's a staggering picture of worship. And we see, first of all, that it was costly, right? This, the text says in verse 3, it was very costly. This woman's worship was sacrificial. It was costly. And that's why the disciples are getting bent out of shape. 300 denarii. You're going to waste a year of paychecks? And just kind of throw it on Jesus? She gives no thought to the cost. She just does it. She gives no thought to... What it's going to cost her, she lavishly just pours it over Jesus in worship, in love, in a vision that she actually knows who's sitting in front of her. It's the Son of God. Can you believe that? And I just wonder, like, she knows Jesus is worth it. Do we know Jesus is worth it? Do we know that when we come every Sunday, we come just like full-hearted to worship Jesus because He's worthy? We, we, we come with an eagerness to get equipped, to go out into this world, to take the name of Jesus to people who are perishing and lost because Jesus is worth it, because Jesus saves, because Jesus moves, because Jesus is the King and He is actually worthy of our worship. And what people need to see most when they come into these doors who don't know Jesus is a people who know how to worship Jesus. 
and display as emblems of grace the worth and excellency and worthiness of Jesus. There's nobody like Him. She takes her prized possession, probably a family heirloom, and she completely gives it all to Jesus. She holds nothing back. She's not perfunctory in her worship. She's not going through motions. She goes all in. Is that us today? Do we, in our worship, do we get bold? Do we get sacrificial? Do we get excited about King Jesus? I'm reminded of the words of Hebrews to come boldly into the throne of grace. Come boldly into the throne of grace and worship King Jesus and ask him, for what you need. He'll give you grace and mercy to help in a time of need. And maybe some of you have withered so much spiritually because you haven't come to a place where you began to see the worth and the excellency and the glory of Jesus and just brought yourself before him and just lavishly poured yourself out in his presence. I wonder what this would do to every meeting if we had the heart of this woman who's just reckless and prodigal in her worship. And the word prodigal, the prodigal son spends his whole livelihood, wastes everything. But when you are prodigal about your worship of Jesus, it's not wasted at all. It's not wasted at all. In fact, the more reckless, the more abundant, the more outpouring our worship is, Jesus commends it. There was a woman who gave two pennies and it was all she had. And there were people giving thousands of dollars here and there. And Jesus looks at her and says, this woman gave more than everybody else because she gave of all she had. And this woman's worship, this woman who goes unnamed here, Jesus says in verse 6, why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. Her worship is beautiful. It's a fragrant aroma to Jesus. It's a good thing. It's a good service to Jesus. He's not scandalized by the cost He's not scandalized in the way that the disciples were. And it says that the disciples scolded her. And the word for scold is like they snorted in verse 5. Like an animal. They were so upset. I cannot believe it. We could be feeding a thousand poor people. We could feed all of Bethany. And they had forgotten that who sits before this woman is the one who took loaves and fish and fed 5,000 people. And you're not going to pour the pure nard out on him? Who, do you, who are you? You don't know who you're dealing with. This is Jesus. This is the Lord of glory. The King of creation. The sovereign God who can save anyone. Because he died on a cross. And he's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our honor. And he poured his blood out on a cross. He gave everything for you. And that's how our worship ought to be.
she's done a beautiful thing. Oh, Lord, make beautiful things happen in this place as we worship. That's my heart. She's rebuked by the disciples who are so slow to get it. They don't know Jesus is headed to the cross. He said it a billion times already by now in the Gospel of Mark. And this woman gets it. And Jesus says to her, leave her alone. Or it says to them, leave her alone. Why are you troubling her? She's done a beautiful thing. You've always got the poor with you. Whenever you want, you could do good to them. He's not denigrating giving to the poor. He's saying there's a primacy to the worship of Jesus. He's in your presence. And there's a primacy there. And I've found throughout all my Christian experience that those who worship Jesus the most and the most lavishly give the most abundantly. Those who worship Jesus the most, those who have a heart for Jesus, care about the poor the most. And those who are grumbling and talking about and nitpicking are the ones who have subterfuge going on. And their motives are usually ulterior. They're not thinking about the poor at all. They're thinking about themselves. The disciples missed it, but she didn't. The disciples were cold in that moment, and she was just full of heart and love for Jesus, and she gave lavishly. Look at verse 8. She's done what she could, Jesus says. She's done what she could. She anointed me for burial. She's done what she could. She's done a good thing. All she had was the pure nard. She had the alabaster flask. She gave it and she did a good thing. And you know what? It was a gospel thing. It was a gospel worshiping thing because she gave this to me and she was anointing me for burial. Remember Passover? She was anointing the Passover lamb for burial. It was like her equivalent of saying what John the Baptist said when Jesus walked through town and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mary is saying here, although she goes unnamed in our text, to stress the importance of her worship. And that even though she goes unnamed, she's honored for all eternity for what she did here. And ultimately, she was anointing Jesus for burial and he wouldn't get anointed because he would be slain on a cross and put into a tomb. And three, late, three days later, he would rise up out of the grave. And you know what would happen? When the women got there to anoint him, where was he? He was gone. He was risen. That's the gospel. That's the emblem of the gospel that we see here. Verse 9, Jesus says, And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Her life 
was an exemplar of the grace of God breaking into a human heart and causing them to be gospel minded. And she was foreshadowing the cross, which means the redemption of the people of God. And listen, if you're in here today and you're saved, it's because you've laid hold of that. It's because this woman's witness bore witness to what Jesus would do on a cross 2000 years ago to redeem humanity. The wrath of God being poured out on him for your sin and mine. And listen, you might find yourself in any one of these pictures. Maybe you're hostile or indifferent. Maybe you're just uh, feeling like I've been duplicitous. I've not been living for Jesus. Or maybe you're falling on your face. You're bowing your heart. You're going all in for Jesus because you're like Mary, who would be honored forever and wherever the gospel is preached. This woman, her testimony about Jesus would be given because she saw Jesus and she saw him as worthy. She saw the Sandy Koufax card and she didn't toss it because she knew what it was worth. Let's come before the Lord. Father. Maybe we've come in here today in all different places where the worth of Christ is concerned. And maybe there's some of us who've just fallen short. We've struggled with this. We've been discouraged. Uh, maybe we've been living a double life. Maybe there's been anger in our hearts towards you and you just want to liberate us from that. And maybe, Lord, we just are feeling a call to go all in. We're, we're feeling a call for the Spirit of God to ignite worship in our hearts where we're just seeking the face of the Lord and we're going all in in our worship and we're worshiping lavishly and sacrificially and, and Lord, with no regard to the fear of man. Father, I pray that your people would be strengthened with a vision of gospel worship. And that when we come into this place, oh God, no matter what's happened to us out there, we know, Lord, that this is a place, a sanctuary, where the people of God gather and Jesus gets the honor he is due. And then it fuels us to go out throughout the week and give him the honor he's due at everything that we do. Because we do all for the glory of Christ. So we pray now, Lord, minister to our hearts and help us where we are at. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.